I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My name is Police Constable Arsenal Guinness of the Metropolitan Plot. I wish to inform you that under section blah 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 of Her Majesty's Penis Code 22 etc. It is illegal for you not to be a Patreon supporter of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Failure to do so will result in her majesticalness knocking off your block. And without a bonce, you will not be able to ogle Princess Kate and her fit sister with a lovely bum, which is a crime against eyes, dribble, leering and boy trumpets. Thank God for starched trousers and a sturdy truncheon. By downloading Murder Mile for free, by forcing a fat bald man to work thrifty gazillion hours a week in a cakeless, beerless, evergreenless boat just to entertain yourself is slavery. So do not end up in chokey doing bird and being bent double so Big Bert can use your butt cheeks as a toast rack. Sign up to Patreon today, where you will get some crappy videos, some crappy badges, a crappy ebook, and a shitty thank you card. What he has not spelt good. But I will also not arrest you, search your home, or confiscate any suspicious items, such as crates of Guinness, Arsenal season tickets, or any mucky magazines with ladies whose frontage defies gravity. Evening all. This message is not endorsed by the police, the Queen, the Royals, any minor royals, any lazy ones, or any really ugly horse-faced ones. Arsenal football team, the makers of Guinness, Big Bert, Eva Green, or Toast Bum PLC. If you enjoyed series like The Blackout Ripper and The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place, Murder Mile will be rolling out several new multi-part series just like these across the year, with the next multi-part series slopping into your noggin in May. But before that, there's this... Friends, welcome to Mini Mile, your indispensable compendium of UK true crime trivia. This week, we'll ask, what music do deranged killers listen to? What happens during rigor mortis? We'll ask, are you a necrophile? What's the shortest prison sentence for a murder? And we'll get valuable life lessons from Moore's murderer, Ian Brady. And with only five weeks... Till the brand new Murder Mile multi-part series, here's this week's episode of Mini Mile. Right, 
Let's get things jiggy with a little. How do you do? By learning more about some infamous murderers and serial killers on a more social level. This week, music. <gasps> what are their musical tastes? So you're probably thinking, what's so fascinating about the musical tastes of murderers? Surely they all listen to thrash metal, which is the choice of every angry, sweaty, smelly, basement-dwelling, leather-clad fan of tinned hot dogs and tinnitus. Classical music. The choice of uptight, sad, single, tweed-wearing, sap geography teachers who stink of bleach, bovril, and bo, or opera, the choice of all arseholes called Hubert. I'm guessing. Oh, relax, people. I'm just joking. The first album I ever owned was "Touch Me" by X Page Three Girl Sam Fox. Go figure. Touch me, touch me. I wanna feel your body. Your heartbeat next to mine. This is the night. Touch me, touch me now. Touch me now. Touch me now. Hmm. Nice. Well, unlike in interviews where most murderers pretend to be candid, but have actually pre-prepared their answers to make themselves seem deeper, smarter, or nuttier, we're learning what they listen to can give you a better insight into their true selves. Although, what their choice actually means is up to you. So, Rose West of the infamous 25 Cromwell Street murders, who is currently serving a life sentence at Low Newton Prison in Durham, having sadistically tortured and murdered ten young girls with her husband, including her own stepdaughter, was raised listening to her dad's personal favourites of Elvis Presley and Bill Haley, but she adored 1950s crooner called Jimmy Young, who had top ten hits with love songs such as Chain Gang. Someone on your mind, and too young. Okay, I'll be honest here. I may have accidentally cherry-picked some of these songs. Fred West, her husband, who hung himself in prison before he could be found guilty of at least twelve murders with his wife, was a huge fan of Black American country music star Charlie Pride, who sang such heartfelt emotional ballads as "Kiss an Angel Good Morning," "I'm So Afraid of Losing You Again." And I can't believe you stopped loving me. Oh, how lovely! Dennis Nilsson dubbed the kindly killer. Prior to strangling each of his young slim victims, and later fondling and defiling their slowly cooling corpses, he used to get himself in the mood (inverted commas) by listening to Tommy by the Who, which is oddly a rock opera about a sexually abused boy. Journey to the Center of the Earth by prog rock legend Rick Wakeman. The Royal Philharmonic's bastardization of Bach, called Hooked on Classics, ugh, and his personal favorite, Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. Many of these hits Nilsson would play on his own personal keyboard in HMP Full Sutton Prison. Peter Sutcliffe, also known as the Yorkshire Ripper, who murdered thirteen women and attempted to kill seven others, loved a truly eclectic mix of music, as seen on the C90 cassettes he kept. Many of which have since been sold to morbid collectors. Predictably, he liked Mozart's Requiem. He was a fan of disco hits by Hot Chocolate, the Bee Gees, Earth, Wind and Fire, and later synth tracks by the Eurythmics. He also loved reggae, with his favorite songs being "The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face" by Marcia Griffiths, "Please Don't Make Me Cry" by UB40, 
and Wonderful World, Beautiful People by Jimmy Cliff. And strangely, for a man with a real hatred for women, he loved Joan Baez, especially her songs like Don't Think Twice, It's Alright, All My Trials, and Joe Hill, which he lists on his cassette as Joe, You're Ten Years Dead. Oddly, very little is known about Myra Hindley, the Moore's murderer's musical tastes, before she met her partner, Ian Brady. But upon dating him, she developed a shared love of Wagner, which was Hitler's personal favourite, as well as such popular songs which Hindley and Brady used to use as a secret reference to their victims, such as Girl Don't Come by Sandy Shaw, It's All Over Now by Joan Baez, Legion's Last Patrol by Ken Thorne, 24 Hours from Tulsa by Gene Pitney, and It's Over by Roy Orbison. And yet, sadly, for murderer Robert Maudsley, who was horrifically abused as a child, went on to kill a child rapist, and having murdered a fellow inmate, in a story which tabloid hacks cruelly dubbed him Hannibal the Cannibal, as they claimed he had eaten a prisoner's brain, which was complete and utter bullshit amongst anyone who has an IQ above six, Unfortunately, the nickname stuck. Sadly, Robert Maudsley has spent 23 hours a day, every day, for the last 40 years in solitary confinement, in a 5 metre by 4 metre bulletproof cell in Wakefield Prison, with a table and a chair made from cardboard. And even though he absolutely loves classical music, he has never been allowed a radio and hasn't heard music since 1983. And for our friends overseas, here's a few for you. John Wayne Gacy, dubbed The Clown Killer, loved Keep On Loving You and Take It On The Run by REO Speedwagon. Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal, loved Black Sabbath's Paranoid, The Wizard and Iron Man. And Charles Manson, not a serial killer, but more a supremely dull news whore and the former cult leader of Helter Skelter, claimed that the Beatles' White Album had a message to his followers about the upcoming race wars and yadda 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 etc. But he was also a big fan of the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas and Neil Young. And finally, what about military despots and dictators? And no, before you ask, a dictator is not a military maniac whose penis resembles a King Edward potato although that could explain a lot. Adolf Hitler. We all know that the Nazi nutjob was a huge fan of Wagner, and apparently he carried around a copy of Tristan and Isolde in his knapsack. But former Libyan dictator Colonel Gaddafi reportedly paid out millions of dollars for Nelly Furtado, Mariah Carey, Fiddy Cent, Lionel Richie, Usher, Kanye West and Beyonce to personally perform for him and his family environmentally friendly frontman and political flag waver Sting was apparently paid £1 million to perform for the daughter of the Uzbek president, Islam Karimov, who has since been denounced for serious human rights violations, the massacre of protesters, and ironically for Sting, he had a dreadful environmental record. Having had his iTunes account hacked, it was revealed that the favourite songs of Syria's Bashar al-Assad are I'm Sexy and I Know It, by the gold jockstrapped prancers LMFAO, I'm Too Sexy and Don't Talk Just Kiss, 
by their notoriously camp and openly homosexual songsters, writes said Fred, as well as Hurt by Leona Lewis, Look at Me Now by Chris Brown, and even worse, a tribute to Cliff Richard. And if you're wondering what North Korea's Kim Jong-un, who his favourite artist is, it's Hyun Song-wal, creator of such state-approved, plinky-plonky pop-synth pap, with hits like I Love Pyongyang, We Are the Troops of the Party, Footsteps of the Soldiers, and Kim Jong-un's personal favourite, Excellent Horse-Like Lady. Enjoy it. If that's not a reason to go to war with him, I don't know what is. Now, it's time to get technical. Let's get technical, technical. I want a spare testicle. I want three testicles. Let me hear your scrotum creak. Your scrotum creak. Let me hear your scrotum creak, etc. By saying fairly well to the yadi yadi ya of all those CSI true crime shows, and asking exactly how does it work. This week, rigor mortis. What is it, and how does it help pathologists to determine a person's time of death? Before we understand rigor mortis, we need to determine what is death. There are three stages before death can be determined, respiratory, cardiac, and neural. Once a human body goes into respiratory arrest, the lungs stop, and oxygen is no longer produced. Once a human body goes into cardiac arrest, the heart stops and that oxygen-rich blood can no longer be pumped to the vital organs which keep us alive, including the brain. Brain cells can die if they are deprived of oxygen for more than three minutes, and once the brain is dead, the person is dead. Of course, if anyone actually enjoyed Excellent Horse-like Lady, they are also emotionally dead. Ha ha ha, ha 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 ha. Rigor mortis is just one of several stages which pathologists use to determine a time of death, including decomposition, which we'll focus on next week. But these are the first four. Number one, palamortis, which in Latin literally means paleness of death. It's where the skin rapidly becomes whiter or paler owing to a lack of blood circulating through the body's capillaries. It begins within the first 15 to 25 minutes of death and can last up to two hours. But how pale a person becomes does not denote how long they've been dead, as all skin tones are different. Number two, alga mortis, which in Latin means coldness of death. 
That's where, owing to a lack of fresh warm blood circulating, the body begins to cool in a slow steady decline. Excluding external factors such as clothing, disease, drugs, alcohol and the environment, the human body has an average rectal temperature of 36.9 degrees Celsius, which is 96.4 degrees Fahrenheit. But after death, this reduces by an average of 2 degrees Celsius in the first hour, and 1 degree for every hour after that, until the body matches or nears the ambient temperature of its environment. The only time the body temperature naturally changes is during decomposition, when owing to chemical changes in the body, the temperature actually increases. Number 3. Rigor mortis, which in Latin means stiffness of death. This is the rigidity of various parts of the body caused by a chemical change in the muscles. Rigor mortis can occur after 2-4 to four hours, it reaches maximum rigidity after 12 hours, and slowly dissipates over the next 72 hours, until rigidity has ceased. The face and neck muscles are affected first, then the limbs, with the eye and the mouth muscles often opening and becoming fixed after death, which often gives corpses a shocked and haunted expression. And number four, liver mortis, which in Latin means bluish color of death. This is when, as the heart is no longer circulating blood, gravity causes the heavier red blood cells to sink to the lowest part of the body. This begins in the first 20 to 30 minutes after death, but isn't visible until two hours later, when the size and discoloration of those patches reaches its maximum, 18 to 12 hours after death. So, although rigor mortis is vital for pathologists, it's really a combination of these four factors Palamortis, the paleness, Algamortis, the coldness, Rigamortis, the stiffness, and Livermortis, the colour, which can help determine a time of death. As well as what state of digestion the victim's last meal is in their stomach, whether the optic fluid in their eye has begun to dry, whether the skin has lost its elasticity, which different microbes remain in the victim's mouth, the coagulation of the blood for very recent deaths, and which different flies or larvae have begun to feed or gestate inside the body. Yummy! And if you were listening to that whilst partway through a lovely meal, like a kebab, or a pie, or a pizza, or something with meat, yum! If you haven't put down your knife or fork yet, I wouldn't tuck back into your meal for at least another ten minutes. Order, order! The painfully dishonourable Judge Michael presides, and wearing possibly the worst wig, dress and mink coat, declares to you all, I am the law. Whilst assuring you all that these are my judge's robes, and that I'm definitely not a crossdresser. Whilst I give you a quick overview of true crime legal limbo. Silence in court. This week, necrophilia. What is it? and what defines a necrophile. As you'll remember, John Reginald Halliday Christie from our previous multi-part series, The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place, was a necrophile, and he engaged in sexual intercourse with the recently deceased bodies of his victims. But what constitutes necrophilia? Does it have to involve full penetrative sex? Or can it be masturbation, groping, or simply a desire to sleep with the dead? 
And are you a necrophile if the person you're in bed with dies during sex? I'm asking for a friend. Honest. According to the World Health Organization, necrophilia, also known as necrophiliasm, necrolagnia, and my personal favorite term, necrocoitus, is an attraction, a fantasy, an intense sexual arousal, or a sexual act involving the corpses of dead human beings, with the form of sexual contact ranging from penile, vaginal, or anal intercourse, oral sex, or the masturbation of, or in the presence of, a corpse. Legally, most countries don't have clear guidance on necrophilia, as it's quite a rare form of paraphilia. So in most countries, necrophilia is only considered an illegal act as it involves the disturbing of a body or the burial ground, which in most cultures is illegal. But because the dead cannot give consent to the sexual act, necrophilia is considered non-consensual sex, and therefore it is illegal. Of course, one option could be to get the soon-to-be-deceased to sign a consent form before they pop their clogs. Although, that would be less of a donor card, and more of a boner card. Way! <laughs> so, so what makes a person a necrophile? Clinically, a necrophile is a person who has an uncontrollable desire to sleep with dead bodies. But legally, they don't become a necrophile until they have interfered with the burial and engaged in a sexual act with a corpse. So is it still necrophilia if you're having sex with someone and they die during sex? No. As long as they died owing to natural causes, legally that is classified as death by misadventure. But it is only considered necrophilia if you willingly continue the sex act knowing that the other person is dead. Phew! So, how can you diagnose a necrophile? Clinically, a person must experience a minimum of six months of intense and recurring sexual urges or fantasies involving corpses, with a significant change in their mood, behaviour or actions during this period. Necrophiles are most likely, but not exclusively, to be heterosexual men between the ages of 20 to 50. Oh dear who often seek out jobs in hospitals, undertakers, graveyards or mortuaries to gain greater access to dead bodies. Oh come on, that was just work experience for school, okay? And as their desire manifests, necrophiles would often get their sexual partners to lie incredibly still and silent whilst they have intercourse with them, as with Ted Bundy. Some may make their partners or prostitutes wear white makeup as if they were dead during sex. Or, in the case of Dennis Nielsen, he would dress himself up as a corpse, lay still and watch himself as he masturbated in front of a mirror. All of which happened years before his first murder and his first sexual experience with a corpse. And in rare cases, as with Jeffrey Dahmer, they may also engage in cannibalism. Which I would say is like eating one end of a chicken wrap and then shagging the other. I'm guessing. In 1989, Dr. Jonathan Rosman and Dr. Philip Resnick published a study called A Sexual Attraction to Corpses, a Psychiatric Review, in which they conducted a study of 122 confirmed necrophiles. In total, 92% were male, 8% were female, and 57% had regular access to corpses as part of their job. 
Often necrophiles have a very poor self-esteem due to a significant loss or rejection, or a fear of rejection. And interestingly, they also tend to have a fear of death. But this fear of death is transcended by developing a living relationship, a routine, or a sexual fantasy with the corpse. In Dennis Nielsen's case, the sex acts with the corpse were as equally important as washing, dressing, or bathing the corpse, as well as propping the dead body up in an armchair and watching TV with them. Of those necrophiles interviewed, 68% said that they were motivated by a desire to be unrejected by their former partner, 21% by a need for a reunion with a lost partner, only 15% claimed that they had a sexual attraction to dead bodies. 15% said they were motivated by feelings of loneliness or isolation. And only 12% by a desire to remedy their low self-esteem by expressing power over a corpse. In Nielsen's case, he stated that his necrophilia began following the death of his beloved grandfather, who Nielsen adored and claimed that his life was empty when his grandfather, who was a fisherman, would be away at sea for weeks on end. One day, when he was five, Nielsen's mother announced that his grandfather had come home. And when young Nielsen excitedly ran into the bedroom, he saw that the man he loved the most in the world was dead. The body had been laid out as part of the family's religious beliefs. And there Nielsen said he wasn't afraid, but that he felt a strange sense of love for this dead body. Later in life, feeling like an outsider who was rejected and abandoned by his family and subsequent boyfriends, when Nielsen murdered his first victim, Stephen Holmes, he later stated, I had finally acquired a new kind of flatmate. This was someone who would never leave him, never hurt him, and never reject him. Interestingly, Dennis Nielsen claimed to have only have had penetrative anal sex with just one victim and he didn't enjoy it. Instead, he engaged in extracrural sex, which is non-penetrative sex, in which the male places his penis between his partner's thighs, often with lubrication, and thrusts to create friction. Oh, how romantic. I should have saved this episode for Valentine's Day. Legally, only two countries have laws which expressly make it illegal to engage in sexual acts with a corpse. And that is South Africa and the United Kingdom. Oh, God damn it. Which, under the UK's Sexual Offences Act of 2003, carries a two-year prison sentence. Prior to 2003, in the UK, necrophilia was not illegal. And the act of exposing a naked corpse in public was only classified as a public nuisance. In most countries, necrophilia is not expressly mentioned in its laws, but there are laws which forbid the disturbing of a grave or interfering with a dead body. Strangely, in Brazil, it is illegal to abuse a corpse or the ashes. In New Zealand, it's illegal to engage in what they call misconduct with human remains. In Sweden, it's illegal to abuse a corpse or a grave. Though These are the exact words. In India, it's only illegal to disturb the burial ground. And in the United States of America, there is no federal law which covers this. But each state has their own legislation. For example, in Washington, 
necrophilia is a felony. But in Texas, it's only a misdemeanor. Say no more. And yet, you'll be pleased to know that there are no laws governing sex with a corpse in New Mexico, Nebraska, Vermont, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana and North Carolina. Well, that was pleasant, wasn't it? Hmm, I'm feeling a bit tired. I think I need to book a holiday for myself and my friend, because uh, he's looking a little pale. Now, where shall I go? Hmm, I hear North Carolina's nice. Right, now, as I am an advertising whore, I'm like the Camel Vorderman of podcasting, and I will literally sell you anything, even my soul, just for a few pennies, which is basically what I earn. So give it just two weeks, and I'm sure I'll be selling you Stanister lifts, walk-in baths, and over-50s life insurance, and I'll lure you in with the promise of a crappy complimentary cabbage clock and a free plastic pen. Woohoo! But before that, here's a really awkward space for a... Hang on a minute. Hiya, Acast here. Oh, hi, Acast Mike here. Um, is there going to be an advert in this week's show? Uh, you know, Mark. It's Mike. I don't know, Mark. Mike. So who does know? You know, I don't know, Mark. Mike. So if you don't know, who does know? You know, Mark, I don't know. Here, Sandra, toss us one of them jelly vodka shots, yeah? My hands are all shaking and it's messing up my high score on Jenga. Anyway, folks, just in case, here's a possible advert. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Or maybe there wasn't an advert. Hey, Acast. Was there an advert just then? You know, Mark, I don't know. Ah, oh, sod it. <laughs> don't worry, folks, that was a joke. They're all very lovely people at Acast and very helpful and lovely and fantastic. And they, they only occasionally drink vodka shots and play Jenga. 
Um, <laughs> so far, they haven't told me to leave yet, even though I drank all of their IPA at the Christmas party. Yay! <laughs> so, like I almost certainly would do if I was handed a custard donut, which was in the shape of Eva Green. <sighs> Let's dip our tongue into the strange where I share with you a fascinating factoid of true crime trivia, which will make you go, Oh, Michael, your encyclopedic knowledge of weird shit is truly amazing, as well as a little bit scary. But I shan't call the police yet, not until I have more evidence, and there's a sizable reward for your arrest. This week, what was the shortest ever prison sentence in British legal history for a convicted murderer? This is the infamous case of Rex versus Dudley and Stevens, which changed British common law forever by effectively stating that cannibalism could not be used as a valid legal defence to commit murder. On the 19th of May, 1884, a 52-foot yacht called the Minionette set sail from Southampton on the south coast of England for Sydney in Australia hoping to make the rather foolhardy 15,000-mile voyage in an undersized leisure boat with a vastly inexperienced crew, consisting of Tom Dudley, the captain, Edwin Stevens, Edmund Brooks and Richard Parker, the cabin boy who was a 17-year-old orphan with no seagoing experience. Seven weeks into their voyage, on the 5th of July, 1,600 miles northwest of the Cape of Good Hope, as they neared the windswept peninsula of South Africa. Whilst the crew slept, the gale-force winds battered and disabled the vessel, and as the minionette sank, the four-man crew sailed away to safety in a flimsy 16-foot lifeboat, with only two small tins of turnips to feed them, and no fresh water. Twelve days later, having eaten both tins of turnips, and devoured a passing three-pound sea turtle, which had barely enough meat on it to feed the ravenous crew. And with them all feeling weak and unwell from a lack of fresh water, 17-year-old cabin boy Richard Parker began to drift in and out of consciousness. Having previously drawn straws to see who would bravely sacrifice themselves as a meal to save the others from certain death, in a moral argument which raged for many days and certainly for many sleepless nights. By the 24th of July, with Parker believed to be in a coma and being the only crew member without a family, Captain Dudley and Edwin Stevens made the decision to sacrifice the unconscious orphan boy. The idea being that, as they had run out of urine and had no other safe liquids to drink, as drinking seawater can be fatal, as he wasn't dead yet, his flowing blood would still be fresh and nutritional enough to drink, and his meat would be plentiful enough to feed them for the weeks to come. So with Brooks supposedly taking no part in this deadly decision, having said a prayer, as Stevens held the boy's legs, Captain Dudley pushed his penknife into Parker's jugular vein, killing him quickly and siphoning off his steadily seeping flow of blood into an empty turnip tin. Oddly, 
As much as he was disgusted at the boy's death, Brooks allegedly devoured more meat than Stevens. On the 29th of July, five days after Parker's death, the three crew members were picked up by a German vessel called the Montezuma, and by the 6th of September, they had arrived back in England. As was regulations, Captain Dudley made a full statement admitting that they had eaten Parker to save their lives. They listed the death as a shipping loss, which he was legally required to do so under the terms of the Merchant Shipping Act, and both the Board of Trade and the Home Office had no plans to arrest them. But having heard the details of the case, that the orphan boy was not dead but dying, and that his death was hastened by the starving crew to feed themselves, this stepped over the line from being an acceptable loss to shipping to being a murder. And so the customs officer of Falmouth Harbour, Police Sergeant James Laverty, obtained a warrant for their arrest. Legally, had Richard Parker died of natural causes, which was highly likely, and the crew had eaten his corpse to stay alive, that would have been perfectly acceptable in the eyes of the law. But as the unconscious boy was still alive, even though he was unlikely to recover, Dudley and Stevens had committed murder. And even though without his blood or meat, they would have all died, all three were tried as murderers. The case became a public sensation, and everyone was on the side of the three survivors. Even Richard Parker's own brother, who was a seaman himself, shook their hands in court and forgave them. As Brooks had not agreed or taken part in the boy's death, he was found not guilty. But with necessity not being allowed as a legal defence, Captain Dudley and Edwin Stevens were found guilty. They were charged with the boy's murder and they were sentenced to death. But following a public uproar, the Crown granted them both a full pardon and they served just six months in prison for the murder of Richard Parker. So, here's my top tip for the week. If you're stuck on a lifeboat, if you're hungry, and you need someone to die so that you can fill your belly, you're going to have to wait. Sorry. Or, as mentioned with necrophilia, why not get them to sign a consent form before they die? Then stick their meat on a spit, roast it, and serve it with lettuce, chilli sauce and peppers in a pita bread. Therefore, that consent form will be less of a donor card and more of a donor card. Hey! Thank you. I'm available for children's parties, weddings and bar mitzvahs. Hey, what's that plopping through my letterbox? Is it a free box of posh seeds, which I meant to eat as a healthy snack, but I probably won't, I'll just say, balls to it, I'll scoff a donut instead. Definitely. Is it a bank statement, which will make me go, hang on, I didn't spend 200 quid on beers last Saturday night. Oh wait, hang on, I did. Ah, shit. Almost certainly. But it isn't. So what is it? Why? It's the Dead Letter Drop! Yes, each week I'll read to you a rather mundane letter written by an infamous serial killer. This week is the Moore's murderer, Ian Brady. Before we begin, 
I feel I need to add in some background onto the Moore's murderer Ian Brady for those who are unaware of him, as it will put this letter into an entirely different context. Between 1963 and 1965, Ian Brady, along with his girlfriend Myra Hindley, kidnapped, tortured, raped and murdered five young children between the ages of 10 and 17 and buried their bodies in shallow graves on the desolate wilds of Saddleworth Moor. After his arrest and conviction, Brady never expressed any regret or remorse for his actions and he even taunted the victim's parents with the knowledge of their child's cruel death and the possible location of their shallow graves, which he never released. Both he and Myra Hindley are now both dead. So, it seems almost bizarre that in a letter dated the 11th of January 2001, whilst incarcerated in Ashworth Psychiatric Prison, Ian Brady corresponded with an unidentified schoolboy called Thomas, who Brady appears to have taken under his wing and has given him some important advice on life. So here goes. Dear Thomas, thank you for your letters. Now I want you to read this letter very carefully to ensure that you fully understand the important point I intend to make. I've told you repeatedly in various letters that crime is a mugs game and that you can earn more by training for a skilled job, as you are presently doing, getting good results from your courses and exams, which I tried to assist you with. If you find life dull and boring in the ordinary world, imagine what it's like in prison. If you could, you would lose any interest in crime and criminals. Try imagining sitting in your cell for 40 years, while your friends outside are enjoying themselves. I get the feeling that you have written to other prisoners, and that if they have let you believe that crime is an intellectual occupation, they're lying, simply to comfort themselves. As for me, well... My example says it all. I'm already a dead man walking. What's to be admired about having death as a sole occupation? What's even interesting about it? I'm weak now. And I also have the flu. So I'm losing all interest in the outside world. And have nothing left to teach you or anyone else except the futility of crime. So I'm beginning to say goodbye to all these people I write to, including you. I enjoyed our letters and the many intelligent questions you asked and hope you guide your interests in a more positive direction. My life was over long ago. It has no relevance for me as I'll never see it again. It is also important to realise that your innocent letters to me would get you into a great deal of trouble if certain people outside found out about it. That alone could ruin your life. Understand? Destroy all of my letters and remember the good advice I've given. There's no need to answer this letter. I wish you all the best. Thanks for writing. Best wishes, Ian. Oddly, even as he gives advice, his tone is self-pitying, narcissistic, and although he mentions that crime is a mugs game, he never expresses any regret, shame, pity, or empathises with his victims or the families, and is entirely self-absorbed in his own personal needs. Now normally at this point, I would play you a recording of Brady's voice, 
but as far as I can find, there is only one out there, and it's the audio tape of the murder of Leslie Ann Downey. And if you've listened to it, you know that it should never be played. And finally, dear friends, before we go, here's your regular dose of Quickie News. Back in 2005, a 23-year-old homeless man and part-time busker called Jamie Perry was threatened with prison time, having broken his ASBO, which is an antisocial behaviour order, for deafening West End shoppers by performing musical medleys not using a trumpet or a bugle, but a one-metre-long traffic cone. And he's still a regular feature on Soho streets today. And if you want to see him, simply Google Soho traffic cone buskers, and there he is, in all his awful, out-of-tune glory. And now you know. So, my rather lovely friends, that was your weekly dose of Mini Mile. I hope it was a fun bizarre and informative companion to your regular Murder Mile. And don't forget the new exciting Murder Mile multi-part series is coming in May, and next week there will be even more Mini Mile. And if you have any comments, original questions, or any unusual topics you'd love for me to research and discuss, let me know. Contact me via email, my website, or social media. And a big thank you this week to my new Patreon supporters, who are Fiona Sutton, Eva Rosicki, a brand new cash patron who came on my walk, and also a big thank you to Dina and Charles Seagate for the lovely chockies, yum yum, and Paul Puckridge for the epic book on Victorian murders. I feel truly spoilt. And to say that if you're enjoying this series, please do share it with your friends, as the more listeners Murder Mile has, the longer it can continue. All reviews, shares and mentions are truly appreciated. Mini Mile will be back next week, but before that, here's my recommended podcast of the week. Love to you all. Tati bye! Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened. And I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.